So here we are again. Um, the last time we met, we were looking in Colossians chapter 3. And at that time, we looked just at three verses. We looked at verses 5, 6, and 7. Uh, and beginning with Paul's instruction in verse 5, just to give you, just to kind of bring you forward again. Once again, started using that language, that mortification language about putting things to death, putting sin to death. There the reference was members of the body, put members of your body, put them to death. In fact, and I usually go from the New King James, but if you look in the New American Standard, that verse, verse 5 reads, he says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. That's what he was telling us to do. James in chapter 4, verse 1, uses that same terminology, talking about the members of your body. And um, he's just talking about those, those things, that body which is uh, literally synonymous with sin and the uh, manifestation of sin in our life through our body. You could look at James 4 verse 1 and see a parallel there. So that's what Paul was talking about. We have to identify it. We have to call it what it is, as I often say. If we skirt around it, then it just continues to bloom and to flourish in our life. That verse continues and he talked about a number of sins and we took those sins and looked at them individually. He talked about fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which Paul says is idolatry. We looked at those in detail (coughs) and and completed that. Verse 6, we talked about the wrath of God which falls or surely follows those who are involved in those type of sins that Paul mentioned there in verse 5. And then lastly, in verse 7, we were reminded by Paul that such sins were specifically characteristic of the old life. The old life. And we start talking about you know, this phraseology about putting off and putting on. We'll see that again today because Paul goes back to that terminology. It's very practical what he's talking about. Very practical. And the reason he can do this now, and the reason he can give this to the church, the Colossians there, is because they do possess the Holy Spirit of God. It was before they, they, had, no, they had no ammo in the fight. Do you follow me? That's what the Holy Spirit does. You know, the Bible says before the Word of God was foolishness to them. It had no power on them because they were spiritually dead. But now they can look within, based on the Word of God, they can identify these problems, these specific sins in their life, and agree that these are things of the world. And as we'll see later, one scripture says, they should no longer be there. And the emphasis is that they will not be there. It's not that they're not tempted, but we, they don't have an allurement for us like they did before. Is the flesh still there? Yes, it is. Can it pop up? Yes. But we have a power. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in our life over these things. And when we acknowledge that, and we do what He says about identifying these things, I'll say it over and over again, calling it what it is. Is that not the temptation? To take some particular sin and kind of declassify it, to kind of melt it down, as we say, call it something else, make it a little more palatable in our life. That's a deception. That's a a gross deception. That's the work 
of the devil himself in our life. We need to call that what it is and recognize it when it's happening. So they're beyond that. And we who possess the Holy Spirit have the same power. We can and are overcomers. So to emphasize that, I want to deviate just for a moment over to Ephesians chapter 2. And let's begin this morning by going back and being reminded from Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2. We're going to read just the first few verses here because they are rich and powerful. They tell us who we are in Christ. They tell us what we have right now. So let me read it. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Ephesians. And it says, "And And you He made alive who were dead, formerly dead, in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. I'll pause for a moment before Sunday school. (coughs) We were talking about coming to church and you know whether or not we feel good or feel bad about church and the conclusion the very quick conclusion was that if you're not willing to feel bad just for a little bit and by that we mean confronting your sin you'll never truly feel good you never will verse 4 says but god who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what God has brought us from. That's what He has brought us to. So that's a good place for us to begin once again looking at another list that the Apostle Paul is going to give us from Colossians here. This first list, the one that we dealt with the last time, you know, fornication, evil desires, all these things, (coughs) there might be a tendency for some people to look at that list and say, wow, that's those really bad things that I don't do. That's those really bad and nasty things that aren't a part of my life. So don't forget, we looked at that in detail and we talked about how just thinking about some of those things makes us guilty, correct? And I won't go back and we won't reteach that lesson, but be mindful of that. Now, Paul takes it to me, now he's taking it down a little further. He's dealing today, and he gives us this list, he's dealing with things of the mind. He's dealing with, with thoughts and attitudes within us as he talks about anger, and he talks about wrath, and he talks about malice, and these things that work their way up and work their way out in our life and manifest themselves. He says we're to call these what they are. They should not be in our life. We should deal with them. We're different. 
And He's not asking something of us that we cannot do, as I've said before, because as possessors of the Holy Spirit, we can experience, and it's not our victory, but God's victory through the Word, through putting off those things of the world that don't need to be there, and then again, putting on the things that God has provided for us through His Word. So in verse 8, He begins, he says, but now, and this again is from Colossians chapter 3, but now you yourselves are to put off all these, and he gives us the list, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. So that's the list that we'll deal with. Putting it off. That means to set it aside, to identify it, to take it, to at least in our mind, to take it and Take it from here and put it over here because it does not, it's not a part of who we are anymore. It's not. And when we see things emerge in our life that can, you know, can be plugged into one of these items here, anger, wrath, malice, and so forth, it should get our attention because it says immediately we're not acting like Christ anymore. We're not Christ-like in our actions, in our attitude, and our actions emerge out of our attitude, out of our thoughts. We're not being Christ-like, and that's not what the world is seeing. They're to see something different. And if we lose that difference, if we don't manifest that difference, we don't have a message for the world. We become just like every other, quote, religion that's trying to get the world's attention. We're different, and we can be different. We can be consistently different. We can have victory in our life. This is the wonderful Wonderful thing. Our Savior lives within us. He's taking up abode within us through the Holy Spirit. And we, through disciplines of the faith and Spirit, we can take things, we can identify things that don't belong according to His Word. We can set them aside. We can, as Paul pleads, put them off. And you remember the imagery here is like taking off old dirty clothes and throwing them in a corner. That's the imagery that would have popped up as Paul spoke these words originally. (coughs) That must be our attitude. Also, it goes a little deeper as I was studying this in the commentary. It said he may actually, Paul here, when he's talking about putting off, he may be actually making a veiled reference to baptism of that day because it was common in that day that when a person was baptized, they took off their old dirty clothes, I don't know what they put on at that point, but they got a new robe, a white robe, to wear after their baptism. That was a very common thing, a cultural thing. That again is the imagery. That's where we want to go. That's how we want to live. The sins of the old life are to be acknowledged and they are to be forsaken. And we're reminded as believers that we have a role in this Regarding our relationships with one another, do we not? Do we? We've talked about it from time to time. That is that we are to help one another. We are to, as it says, we are to confess our faults one to another. You have someone you're that close to? Someone other than your spouse of the same sex that you can talk to, that you can confess your faults to in confidence? We've mentioned that before. That's our desire, and we have a role. We have a role to help people see. You're to help me see my faults. I'm to help you see yours. Not that we go around with a, with a stick, you know, like they do in the 
Middle East, what do they call it? Bakshist, I think. They'll hit you with a stick if your dress is too short or if your hair is not right or whatever. It's not what we're about, but we're about the truth. We're about making sure that we don't forget each and every day. And we're going to be bombarded. We're going to be bombarded by the world, to live the world's way. Or maybe just simply to be accepting of things, to not speak up, you know, to not be noticeably different, not be a peculiar people as we're supposed to be. We don't want to go there, do we? Well, <clears throat> the first thing he asks us to look at is anger itself, looking at anger. And, you know, as is typical in the original language, you know, you can look at an English word. In this case, it's, you know, rendered anger. But specifically, it's talking about, as it says, a deep and smoldering resentful bitterness. Now, that's a little bit stronger than what we might consider as just anger, right? I'll say it again, a deep and smoldering, something down in, resentful bitterness. In the MacArthur commentary, he says that these provocations of anger do not create the anger or whatever provocation. They only reveal what is inside. They don't create the anger. They only reveal what is inside and and provide a target for that anger. So we're talking about looking within, not just the outward expression. We're talking here about getting to the bottom of why you're angry about something. Okay? What do we usually concern ourselves with when we're looking at anger? If we ask ourselves why we're angry, what, what, do, we, what do we most often think about? What's our goal, in other words, in trying to figure out why we are angry? What would you think our goal is? Why would we want to do that? Perhaps. What else? It does. Is it not sometimes because we're just looking for who or what to blame? Right? We want to put blame somewhere. That's kind of a, of a natural, and I mean natural in the Adamic sense. It's natural for us to lean that way. Who can I blame over this? If I can find who to blame, then I can take the burden off of me, or even subconsciously, I can justify my anger. Because we know intuitively, particularly if we're born again, we know intuitively that anger is dangerous. Anger is dangerous because it takes us to an emotional level that makes us irresponsible with our words. Does it not? Would you agree with that? And that's, that's very hurtful. I don't want someone that the last thing they remember from me, because they won't see me again for a long time, would be words spoken in anger or any kind of improper words spoken. You know, they used to say, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me or words will never hurt me. That's not true. They're extremely hurtful and they last for a long, long time. So we want to be careful for that. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, or vice versa here, wants us to know that. Wants us to make a note of uh, that. In Ephesians, he told the church in Ephesus chapter 4, verse 31, let all bitterness, and then he mentions wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, let these be put away from you with all malice. He hits on three of the ones we're going to look at right there in Ephesians. We're in Colossians. So he had the same message. It's very important to Paul 
Very important for the Holy Spirit. Put it away. Again, in James 1, verses 19 through 20, he says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man do what? Be swift to hear. That should be our motivation. That should be our attitude. Let him be slow to speak. Then he adds, slow to wrath. The expression of anger. Then he tells us why. (coughs) Because he says there in James, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now that should kind of put us in our place, right? The wrath of man, my anger, your outburst, doesn't produce the righteousness of God. What do we call that? How do we justify that kind of anger? We have a name for it. What do you call it? Righteous indignation, right? We think that's just something right out of the Bible that justifies everything. And to be sure, there is a righteous indignation. We can, get, we can get angry inside over injustice, over those kinds of things. We can, and rightfully so. We see that in the life of Christ Himself, do we not? Clearing out the temples. We see that. We know that there's a potential for that. But that is not a justification for every time we feel angry and upset about something. Because for the believer, we don't use our own personal justification system do it. Well, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're to evaluate every thought. We're to take every thought captive, are we not? Every attitude to say nothing about every action, and then we've got to add the things that we should not say and should not do. The omissions. We do those. And how do we do that? Against the Word of God. Is it not clear that the more you know about the Word of God, the more the, the Word of God is in you. And that is, what, that is your filter. That is what you're processing everything in your life. That's how it comes to you, comes through you, is through the Word of God. Should I do this? Should I have this kind of attitude? Am I justified in the anger that I feel? What is the proper response? What is God doing in my life? What is He preparing me for? Yeah, we serve Christ. The Bible says we are His slaves. We're His slaves. We're not His servants. We're His slaves. And that should be our attitude as we serve our Lord. So we have to, to go through this internal, internal process. Drag it out. Call it what it is. We're all emotional beings. Sometimes our emotions are justified. Sometimes our words are justified. But the Bible tells us plainly that we are to speak I love this. We're, we are to speak the truth. How? In love. And we cannot do that if we're following our emotions, if we're being driven by our emotions. What is our goal? What is our attitude in speaking? In speaking strongly. I'm not against strong speech. Sometimes it needs to happen. I understand from Joel that it's going to happen this morning in church, so get ready. (laughs) And thank God for that. So he tells us to look at this issue of anger. You get the impression that perhaps in Paul's day there were a lot of angry people, you reckon? You know, maybe that follows a a society that's pretty much a hand-to-mouth existence. You know, a lot of angry folks. 
Well, you get anger, what else do you get? You get wrath. That's the next thing that he mentions. And when he's talking about wrath here, obviously it's the expression of anger, but it's a sudden outburst of anger. And we can assume, and I think rightly assume, that it's because something, as we would say today, has hit a nerve, okay? Something has struck against Something in our mind, maybe a, a doctrine, a thought, something that we're already committed to, something that we're prepared to protect whatever the cost. And it brings an immediate response out of us. But the question is, is that response justified? Is it? Is it justified? That's the question we have to ask. Anger is the disposition with wrath being the manifestation. And wrath here that he's talking about, he says it's the same as the word uh, or the word wrath that's used. I don't think it's the word wrath, but it's the same original word used in Luke chapter 4 in verse 28. If you go there, you'll see that's where Jesus is back in Nazareth. Do you remember the account? He's there and he's reading. Uh, from the 61st chapter of Isaiah. And he's, he talks about, you know, he says, this prophecy is being fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying, here I am, I'm the Messiah. And then he goes on and he, he takes the people to this place that we talked about earlier. He's taking them to, uh, for lack of a better term, a bad place. A place where they have to acknowledge their sin. They have to go to this place where they have to call it what it is and understand where they stand before God. That's Christ's purpose in that passage. To show them their great need as Jews. And He uses, by way of example, and let me paraphrase it a little. You can go back and read it. He uses two examples. He talks about, what is it, Elijah going to the widow of Zarephath, a Gentile woman, you know, and he kept her oil from running out and he kept her meal from running out and he eventually brought her son back to life. He showed mercy on her, a Gentile woman, and he says, hey, there were a lot of people in that day who needed help, but she's the one that Elijah went to. And then he gives a second example with not Elijah, but Elisha, Elijah's predecessor, the guy that followed him up. And he talks about... I say Naaman, but I think it's actually Naaman is the way it's pronounced. Remember Naaman the Syrian? Hated and despised. He was a military enemy. He was the guy who led these raids into Israel and stole away their people. In fact, it talked about he had a, an, an Israelite girl there who was his servant that he had captured in a raid. But Naaman had leprosy. And Naaman gets cured. And Christ uses these examples and He says these are the people that God went to because they were at least God-seekers in some fashion. They were responsive. And He says, they get the grace before you do. And this is what made them mad. Made them fighting mad. Now, get this picture here. You've got Christ. We're just exploring the depths of anger and wrath right here, okay? You've got Christ... Uh, obviously, the, the, best, the best preacher you could ever have, okay? Everything about his delivery that day, if you want to say, was absolutely perfect. Every little nuance. And I've just always thought it interesting. 
and how fickle congregations can be sometimes. Here you've got the absolute best preacher, the best message, the right time in the world. Everything has come together. And before it's over, you know what they want to do? Throw him over a cliff, which is stoning. They would throw them down there and then heap stones down. That's what they were going to do to him. Why? Because he told the truth. It was necessary for him to take them to a place of reality about their sin. Why? Because they were deceived. And their response was anger and wrath because he trampled on what they had already taken in, nailed down, sealed in their heart and mind. No more discussion. I want to tell you, that is a dangerous place to be. A dangerous place to be. Not that it, it, it creates an environment for us to change our minds or to be swayed from the truth. No. The problem with that, if we take that approach, it shuts, it shuts down. It creates a barrier between us and persons we're trying to minister to. We have to be able to listen. We have to be able to reason with people from the Scriptures. And this, this uh, seeming righteous act of saying, I don't want to hear that, I'm walking off, blah, 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 that doesn't help anything. I'll never forget, I was sharing uh, Christ with a, a neighbor one time years ago. He, he's moved away now. He was a Catholic. And uh, we got on the topic of forgiveness, you know, and, and he made it clear to me that, well, I, I told the priest, you know, it's a done deal. I mean, I've done what I'm supposed to do. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> let's talk about that for a minute. And he listened to me for a minute, and it just kept, he kept coming back. Well, I've told the priest there's nothing else I can do. I went to confession. I said, no, we're talking about a heart change. And when I got to that point, he literally turned and walked off and gave me the hand. Okay? Didn't want to go there. Because in his mind, what, what, what's his state? In his mind, what? It's done. He's okay. He doesn't want to hear about anything that just might make him culpable or take him back to a place of guilt. You know what that's called? That's a demonic deception. That's what that is. And many people in our world are filled with that. Didn't want to hear it. So what's my point? Don't let this wrath spring up on you. Okay, you got to deal with it. If you don't, it hinders, not just hinders us personally, it hinders our ability to minister to others. We are to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. The people that Jesus were talking to that day in Nazareth responded the way they did simply because they thought they were right. And they were going to be indignant about it. Same kind of thing. So there was an explosion of wrath and rage just because Jesus told them that these two Gentiles, by way of example, were in line to receive God's mercy and grace before them and everybody like them. Imagine wanting to move from, hey, is this not Mary and Joseph's son? Wow, he's back home. We know him. To wanting to stone him to death. And such is the human heart. Well, we've got anger, we've got wrath, and then he mentions malice. Malice, and it's simply defined as a moral evil, but in this context, it's talking specifically about speech. That's what he's talking about here. Or moral evil as it's revealed in our speech. 
saying things that you can't get back, saying hurtful things, degrading things, things that tear down the individual. And here, uh, well, he's going to mention blasphemy in a minute, but the context, once again, is that it's not just that you're saying to them, but you're saying, uh, saying them about them to someone else. Not good. And he's going to deal with that next. Blasphemy. This is the word that's, well, in the Greek it's the word blasphemia. But if you're talking about God, you know, we see that word translated blasphemy. But here it is blasphemy, but it would be better translated slander because it's not talking about God in this context. It's talking about people. So we blaspheme, blaspheme God and we slander people. Okay, that's what he's talking about here. James, again, in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, he says, with it, talking about our mouth or our tongue, and you're familiar with that discourse about the tongue from James, with it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. We forget that sometimes, don't we? Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brother, he says, and here it is, these things ought not to be so. They are not to be characteristic of believers. They're not to be characteristic of believers. Then he mentions filthy language which comes out of a person's mouth. And he's talking here about abusive and obscene or derogatory language, derogatory speech. Not to be part of our life. Proverbs tells us in 13.3, He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens his lips, and it's talking about recklessly, shall have destruction. How much can we avoid in our life by guarding not only what we say, but how we say it? Now, we've all been there, haven't we? We've all wanted to go back and recoup, regather those words that have come out on a bad day or whatever or because we let ourselves get too far away from the Word. We're not focusing upon the presence of God in our life. We've allowed ourselves to come under too much of the influence of the world. And when you do that, that's exactly what's going to come out. There's enough flesh left in us to make sure that that happens. We need to know and understand that. Be smart about it. Be disciplined about it. That's what this life is about once we're born again. Now that we have the tool, now that we are possessors of the Spirit, now that we have the full Word of God, we have no excuse. And it remains. How much do we love Christ? How much more do we want to yield and lean into this process of being conformed to the very image of Christ? That's what this is about. That's what mine and your judgment as believers is about. Christ has paid for our sin debt. We give Him our life when we're talking about giving Him our life, our physical life perhaps, but giving Him our life daily, making His Word and His Spirit the domineering factors, the domineering guide in our life. Why? Because He is Lord Not just Savior, He is Lord. And He will use us. He allows us to yield ourselves to Him. What what 
fix it. <clears throat> Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. It's a, <laughs> as quickly. What about a group of unbelievers that, that you, you respond to an unbeliever? Wrongly? Yes. Absolutely. I apologize to unbelievers. I don't want them to think I'm beyond uh, apologizing or they normally they would get the impression that you're not apologizing because you think you're so much better than they are. We can't have that. Now, that's destructive. Yeah, but yeah, apologize. Do fix it. Call it what it is. Tell them why you're apologizing. Use it as a tool, as a ministry tool. That's what you do. (coughs) And we're all guilty. We're all guilty. I've had to go back you know, from time to time with an unbeliever and say, what I said or what I did or whatever, you know, I was wrong in that. And this is why. Why are you, they think, usually they think you're silly for mentioning it. But you tell them why? It's because you're committed. Because you serve a risen Lord. Because He's got requirements for your life. And you're concerned about them. They should get that message. You care enough about them. See? This whole... Yeah, yeah. Stop talking, because I know where this is going. Yeah. And I think a lot of times it's because they don't want to feel like they need to reciprocate when they do this. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jesus talked about you know the way we talk to people, and you calling somebody a fool or that word raka, which means just worthless. You just you just dead. You're just like you're killing you would be like stomping a roach or something. God writes down murder when a person thinks like that. He writes down murder because in your heart that person no longer exists. That's a horrible thing. In fact, he says a person does that's what? In danger of the hellfire. That's what he says. Serious business. Yeah. There are some um there are some um I won't call them dangers, but, but repercussions from that, which is just uh, <clears throat> natural to the Christian life, that being when you are known as, if you're known as a humble person, which all of us should be known as a humble person. The Bible says that Moses was the most humble person on the face of the earth when he lived. That's where we're to go. But this world today will many, many times interpret that humility as weakness. And you see that in a... You know, quasi-military macho world like I live in in the police department. You see that. But you just have to be willing to take that and, and move on. God will take care of that. You can't go wrong being obedient to God. That just don't. It's going to work out, all right? It's going to work out. But yeah, you're right, John. It's good to bring that, bring that forward. We want to make sure. We're to have a good reputation outside the camp as well. And we do that by living for Christ by speaking truthfully and in love to one another. There's yet another verse in Proverbs 21-23. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. You want to save yourself a lot of trouble? Watch your mouth. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> Watch your mouth. You know. I used to tell Ryan when he was little, he'd get in trouble at school just for talking. And I'd say, you've been flapping that yap again, hadn't you? That's what I said. Got a note one day. He's seven years old. I said, do you know what this is about? He said, flapping my yap. I said, yeah, that's what it's about. We know it, don't we? We know it when it happens. Well, let's move on to verse 9. Okay, he's talking now about lying. 
Do not lie to one another. Since you have put off the old man, he goes back to that. We won't rehearse it again. Put off the old man with his deeds. Paul again is simply saying, this is not a part of who you are right now. <coughs> and lying above all else because, <clears throat> I mean, this is, this is the great deception. Lying is characteristic of who? Who's the father of lies? Okay. Lying began, and we see it in the Bible, in Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. Here Satan lies to Eve concerning the results of disobedience to God. He's got a whole different perspective on this disobedience. You know, he tells her something entirely different than what God says. I mean, he shades it a bit, makes it entirely different, because you can't change God's words. He did that in the garden with Eve, and he's been doing that ever since. Just changing it a little bit. Hath God indeed said? That's what it's the way it's rendered there in one translation. As if to say, let's think about this, okay? No, we know what he said. That's what he means. Is that not our struggle to know the Word of God and to know what it means? And you start dealing with that. We could go all the way up to Jesus' temptation in the, in the desert. And what does he do? He hits Jesus every time with what? The Word of God. Let's just change its intent, its meaning a little bit. And Jesus says not one jot, not one tittle will fall away from the Word of God. In fact, heaven and earth will pass away, but He says, My Word will stand forever. That's where we go, folks. That's where we run to. That's our anchor. It will never change. It goes without saying, the more we're filled with that, the more we're filled with Christ Himself because He's the living Word. As I prayed earlier, John 8, 44 tells us about the great deceiver. He says, Jesus was talking to a group. He says, you are of your father, the devil. That's some strong language, is it not? And the desires of your father, you want to do. It's, in other words, it's naturally for you to want to do that. It reflects who you work for. If you act like the devil, well, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. If we would just grab a hold of that. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own, or from his own resources, as it's made clear. For he is a liar and the father of it. So when we lie, when we misrepresent, you can call it what you want, white lie. When we shade the truth, and we present it for something that it's not, You're acting like the devil. That's what it says. He's the father of lies. There's no other acceptable, plausible origin for your lying. Do you realize that? For my lying. For our lying. There is not one. The Bible says God, or that Satan himself, hatches all of that. That ought to be a sobering, sobering thought for us. I'm shocked sometimes when I, I'm still shocked when we interview people at the at police departments and other places and I talk to people who just run grocery stores and they talk about interviewing some of our young people. 
and they uncover all these lies, whether it's lies about their credentials, lies about their grades, lies about their credit status, just a lie. And they wind up maybe not hiring people. And I know out in the world, I mean, apart from public safety, sometimes people just get hired anyway. And you hear managers say, well, if we don't hire them, we're not going to be able to hire anybody. I mean, it's that prevalent. And I can assure you it makes it more difficult in public safety and law enforcement where there is a very strong standard. You go through a lot of folks. I know when I was involved in that process with Cobb County in my former job, it was like one out of 12, maybe, on a good, good batch of folks. <coughs> one out of 12 you might be able to continue in the system. No thought they were going to get hired. Well, that's our world, is it not? Verse 10 He says, and he speaks of those who have put on the new man and have put on. Now, we've talked about putting off twice in these passages. Now, he's talking about putting something on. And he says, the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Right. We represent Christ. We're in the process of a continual transformation a confirmation, being conformed. We're in that process. We put off, now we're putting on. This process continues. And he says we are to be renewed in knowledge. And this speaks of a new quality of life. It's a quality of life that did not exist before. This is who we are in Christ. And out of this we see we're to be continually being transformed. That's exactly what it says at in Romans 12, 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. It says, actually in the original, it says, and, and we are to be, we're to be continually transformed. Being continually transformed. It, it speaks of a process that goes on. doesn't stop. This is our life. Be being changed is the way we would say it. Be renewed in our mind. And then again in Ephesians 4, 22, or 23, it talks about being renewed in the spirit of our mind. And again, this is a continual transformation. So I encourage you, don't be discouraged when you make a mistake in this area. Deal with it quickly. Call it what it is. And you say that, speak it, you know, make it a part of who you are, know what the Word of God says about it, and move on stronger from your experience. And what you will find... You will find that the expanse of time between failures in, in, in any particular area continues to grow larger and larger and larger. We'll never be sinless. We never will be. But we will get better. We will. Through God's grace, through His mercy and provision, we will be overcomers in this life and in the next. We are to desire, as Peter says, the pure milk of the Word. Our want-tos are to change. And this is the key. Desiring the Word of God. You know, make, make studying God's Word at its, at its lowest level, make it a discipline initially. By that I mean, have a time, have a plan, have a regiment. And I discourage you from saying, just, you know, if the Spirit hits you, do it. Don't do that. I do that if it happens. I'm not saying don't do it. But don't just do that. It takes some discipline. Why? Because we got bodies that are wearing out. We got demands on us. 
And we have to be smart about disciplining ourselves to study the Word of God. We need to do that. And out of that will grow more in-depth study. That's the nature of the Word. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You won't be able to get enough. Peter says, desire it. This is what you want. The pure milk of the Word. And then you'll get some meat along the way. And a lot of it. We know the Scripture from 2 Corinthians 5.17. It applies here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things, and that's what we're talking about, old and new things. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. This speaks of what Christ has done for us in that realm. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. That's Paul speaking again to the church at Ephesus chapter 4, verse 17. We are to be imitators of God, he tells that same church. Be imitators of God. He says, as dear children. We are to walk as children of light. In chapter 5, verse 8 of Ephesians. Walk, or as Paul would often say, our conversation, our daily walk. We're to walk as if, (laughs) because we have been enlightened. People see a different person we are to walk circumspectly is the word that's used in my translation not as fools but as wise redeeming the time and he says because the days are evil are we not there does that not have an application today there's a practicality about this why because the days are evil we need christians up front we don't need contradictions to the work of christ we need people living out The Word of God. And this word circumspectly just means accurately and precisely. It means to do something with great care. Why? Because this is important to us. It's very important to us. The way we walk. Where we go. What we do. How we do it. The way that we talk. We have a role in this process of being conformed to the image of Christ. And it's a loving discipline, a loving, a a willful obedience to our Lord. That's our response. We're about to run out of time. The flesh will continue to dangle the garments of the old self in front of the new man and urge him to put them on. It's a quote from MacArthur. And then we know that happens. We can't get away from it, can we? Paul says in Romans 7 there in that discourse about his battle with sin, he says, when I would do good, sin's there with me. It's always there. He can't get away from it. He acknowledges it. And then lastly, our last verse, verse 11, he speaks of where there is neither, he talks about doing this and having the attitude that where there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, I think it's Scythian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. And I love the practicality that comes out of this because Paul's talking about here and he talks about Jews and Greeks and you can just imagine what popped up in their minds when he makes this contrast, Jews versus Greeks. But in a general way, he's just talking about racial and religious barriers, right? In its simplest form. Do we have those today? Duh. They're everywhere, aren't they? And then he speaks of the circumcised and the uncircumcised, okay? And he talks about 
It's the same thing with Jews and Greeks. He talks about these barbarians. I didn't realize that that word barbarian was what they call an onomatopoeic word, a word that sounds like it is, like boom, you know. And you say, well, how so? Barbarian, they're supposed to get the sense of bye, 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 like people who talk in a different language, people who don't speak like them are automatically shunned or considered to be ignorant or, I don't know, savages or something. That was the word that was used. That's what that word barbarian, where it comes from. He talks about people who are mean and hateful, vicious and savage. When he said Scythian, that's what they were, that's what they understood because this was a, 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 a very warlike, nomadic people who dominated others. They were just extremely mean. You know, Josephus writes about these people. Uh, talking about how wicked they were. They didn't just like to kill people. They liked to torture them for a few days and then kill them. And they knew that. And Paul goes back and he, he gathers these words. He throws them at the people because he's going to end by talking about Christ. He talks about those who are slaves and those who are free. Millions of slaves during that day. But he ends by saying that Christ is all in all. Are you kidding me? In all of these barriers that are created because of, you know, Jews versus Greeks, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarians, <coughs> these warlike, nomadic people, the, the tensions between the slave and the free, are you telling me that Christ makes the difference in the lives of all these people? That's a sobering question this morning, is it not? Do we truly believe that? That Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone has the power to bring people such as these together? That's exactly what it's saying. And you can rest assured that that is specifically and supernaturally the work of God. We're to buy into that wholly. We're to live in the light of that for what it is. It's the absolute truth that Christ and Christ alone can make that happen. He can mend those fences. He can bring people together no matter what walk of life they're from. That's an amazing thing. That's the message of the church. The message of the church. It's because of Christ. Well, not only that, he says in Romans 8.23, talking about creation groaning but he says we also have the fruits of the spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body we looked at this from pastor's teaching a couple of weeks ago we know it's going to change we know it's going to get better what can we do in the meantime don't feed sin don't do that don't feed it put off what you're supposed to put off put on what Christ tells us to put on. And then in Colossians 3.16, if we continue, He tells us, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. We just got through reading from Peter. He said, desire the pure milk of the Word. This verse goes right along with that. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. And we must discipline ourselves to evaluate everything that comes in our life through the Word of God. Lastly, Romans 8.29, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn 
among many brethren. This is what Christ has done, and this is what He is doing for us. So let's all get on board, shall we?